embark on a bone-chilling voyage with us on tonight's episode. We'll unravel the baffling enigma of the Mary Celeste, a ghost ship lost in the vast ocean with no crew in sight. Then brace yourself for a haunting detour into the Puna poltergeist. A sting, a spine-tingling tale of unexplained disturbances in a quiet town. So join us as we navigate the mysterious waters where maritime legends and paranormal phenomena collide. Tonight on Newsworthy, two words and two question marks. scoured the podcast world and finally found us newsworthy with steve and jerry where we delve into all things mysterious macabre or out of this world and decide if they are truly newsworthy two words and two question marks Hello, I'm Ed Locke with USA Mortgage. Tax season is upon us. Did you know that 47% of Americans are planning to use their tax refunds for everyday expenses, home improvements, and vacations? What if you used your tax refund for a new home instead? Again, this is Ed Locke with USA Mortgage. Your tax refund can be used towards down payment, closing costs, or paying down existing debt to help get approved. So before you spend that tax refund, let's get together and see how to best utilize those funds to invest in your future and your new home. Call or text me at 502-680-0953. Again, that's 502-680-0953. NMLS ID 448-908, DAS Acquisitions, LLC, doing business as USA Mortgage, NMLS ID 227-262. This is not a commitment to lend. Additional terms and conditions apply. USA Mortgage is an equal housing lender. Hello, Mr. Jerry. How are you? Hello, Steve. I'm great and getting better. Yourself? Well, I'm good, man. I'm excellent. I I got uh, great news today, and then I got bad news today. So um, the great news today is, according to the doctors... And everybody that uh, uh, it looks to be that I am cancer-free. That is absolutely fantastic news. Best I've heard in a long time. Yeah, celebrate. Celebrate. Absolutely. Um, The bad news is Brett has ran off and joined the Dollar General Circus. Surely not. Brett, why (sighs) would you? I, I looked it up. I Googled it. You can Google it. It's okay. it's the Hammer and Brothers Dollar General Parking Lot Circus. <laughs> um, and Brett is a star attraction in two different stars. He's he the word, world's tallest gnome. And he sits in there as the world's uh, foremost bearded man. <laughs> They don't even have a bearded lady. They had a bearded man. That is a cheap carnival. 
That sounds like I'm some of the carnivals I could afford when I was in yeah. growing up. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of like my joke from last week. You're making me reminisce. What's that? Talking, well, just talking about, you know, when you're growing up. It just reminds me, as I get older, I keep remembering all the people that I've lost along the way. Oh? I never should have been a terror guide. Probably shouldn't have been a tour tour guide. That is the the Bad truth. Uh, yeah, absolutely. At least they would say so. Yeah, good gravy. Jeez. But on a better note, I have mentioned to you that I want to get cremated when I die, haven't I? Yeah, yeah, we've talked about that at length. Figure it's my last chance at a smoking hot body. <sighs> You know you love him. <laughs> Boo. Why can't you just, why don't you do this? What's that? Just do like all the other dudes your age do. And? Sell your Hyundai, get your Corvette, and then start cruising down to Miami. You'll eventually get a smoking hot body. It won't be your body, but you'll eventually get one yeah. to ride around with you. Yeah, I'm sure I will. I'm just saying. Shoot. I told you about my last sports car, didn't I? What was that? The first day I friggin' had it, I was driving home and got in this big, long, straight stretch and decided to open it up and see what it would do. Next thing I know, there's these flashing lights behind me. I thought about gunning it. You know, there's a reason why you pay big money for these sports cars. But I thought better of it and finally pulled over and cop walks up to me and he says, you know, I was, I'm off work, but you were uh, Going so fast, I decided I had to pull you over and at least give you a warning. But you were going so fast, if you can't give me one good reason why you're going this fast, I'm going to have to arrest you and take you downtown. I said, well, sir, to be honest with you, about 20, 25 years ago, my ex-wife left me for a policeman that looked just like you. And when I looked in my rearview mirror and saw you, I was at first afraid you were bringing her back to me. Wow. So with my record of sports cars, I think that uh, I'll just leave that one alone. Well, I don't, I mean, with all your good jokes tonight, I don't even think I'm going to tell one. I just know that uh, uh, I heard some pretty bad news about a explosion in France of a cheese factory. Oh, no. Yeah, it was bad. Only thing left was debris. Debris, huh? Yeah. That would certainly be a cheese factory explosion. <laughs> that was terrible. You know what's not terrible? Debris, which well, I bet you hate. Actually, I don't hate Oh, really? It. You it's like brie cheese? Good. Yeah. Okay. I, and I, I never tried it. We have a little German lady that I work with who eats it on a regular, so he don't crackers or with some ham, and she let me try something. It's pretty it good. Is good. Nice, sweet cheese. Yep. Very good. Um... I am impressed. Yeah. She got Steve to try a new food. Absolutely. Number what? Huh? 11 foods you can eat now? Well, I wouldn't put it on the list. I mean, okay. I will okay. I will partake in it. right. it's there. It's not like I'm going to go to the store and look for it. <laughs> that ain't happening. What did I have to take my pizza rolls off the list? What, what the heck? That for? The hell, the hell, man. What the hell is going on? So, Jerry, tonight's topic. 
Very interesting. There are very few things that bother me in this world the way the topics do tonight that we're going to talk about. I can talk about aliens all day long. I can talk about, uh, you know, we have one of the most haunted places in America right up the road with the Waverly the Waverly uh, Sanatorium. Right. Um, Me and you could go up there and spend the night. I'd probably get a little freaked out, but it would not scare me to the point of the topics we're going to discuss tonight are. I do not understand that. It's Um, the same type of thing, is it not? It's similar, but that's, I think that's where it stops. You know, there's a huge difference between an between seeing an apparition walk down a hall and being under attack by something you can't see. Um, that's huge. You know, I get it. Um, last week we talked about aliens attacking and the family down in Christian County and what they went through. At least. Even in their own minds, they went to, went through um, the people in Springfield, West Virginia, and the 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 terror that was the Mothman to them. And whether you believe in that or not, those people to those people that experienced that, that was very real. Sure. Um, even my own experience with some things that I have personally saw. None of the things, none of those things compare to what we're going to talk about tonight. And, uh, yours, uh, yours, yeah, yeah. I mean, the one yours is scary, yours, yeah, is hard to dispute. It, it's, it's mine's one of those that just don't know what the crap happened to it. I mean, when and I'm going to talk about the Puna and We'll get into where that is and why that's important, but the Puna Poltergeist tonight. Um, and that poltergeist went through multiple exorcisms. Um, and with each exorcism gained power, as opposed to, you know, you watch the movie and the, you know, ooh, the, you know, the, the final is the battle between the priest and the, the poltergeist before the demons finally expelled and the sunlight comes up and the world's a better place. That's not how this story happened at all. <laughs> this one had a lot of witnesses. A lot of witnesses. It, it had a long period of time. A long period of time. It, it literally, between two separate entities, ripped lives apart. And knowingly done so. Done things just to, in effect, mess with the living, if you will. Just crazy. Um, and I, 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 I'm I, not going to do this story justice tonight, I'm afraid. Hopefully both of us together can, can, can give it some credence. Because we want you to be able to go explore this for yourself tonight. Because it's going to raise the hair on the back of your head. We're also going to talk about the Mary Celeste, the haunted, the haunting of the Mary Celeste, and that's a really cool deal as well. And I, I really, first of all, haunted ships 
freaked me out too. So tonight's whole show was like, how can we freak out Steve the most? Because I love cruising. It's one of my favorite things to do. Got another cruise booked in October. Can't wait to go. But your what stories. What would you do if you were on a cruise? Sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, no, go ahead. And you found out that your cabin was haunted. It depends on the level of haunting. I mean, realistically, like I said in, in the very opening. Would you wait to see how bad it could get? Maybe. Yeah, I think. Uh, see, I don't even believe in most of this. I also believe when you see enough stuff, it's probably time to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. Can't just get up and leave. Yeah. The correct answer to the question I just asked you would be at the next port of call, uh, I'm out. <laughs> That's the correct answer. Peace out. No, I mean, it, again, you know, I, and one of our listeners, uh, uh, Carla, listens, you know, we experience things together that were very odd and were definitely a haunting, but weren't a anger-filled retribution because we were alive. There's a huge difference in the two. No, I agree. Hey, that spirit is lingering because it doesn't know where to go versus... This thing wants me dead. This thing wants me to die or at least wants to torture me. And I think that's the distinction here for me personally. I, I think you're missing my point. I'm not waiting to figure out what its intentions are. Okay. Yeah, I got I'm you. I'm probably leaving. Well, in most cases. And we'll talk about it later when we get to the end of your mean, show, but your show is not an easy one to leave. Yeah, it really isn't. So, my question is is this Do you need me for your birthday? Um, as Skeddy and the dogs are starting to decide to play, right? As we can start again. Um, do you need me to create a a pillow with my face on it so that wherever you go, you can take it with you and, and hold it tightly no. to protect you from ghouls and ghosts and goblins. Again, I've, I've never experienced anything in my life. I'm not really afraid. At the same time, I also know myself well enough to know I'm probably not going to need that much to happen before I decide it's time for me to leave. I, dude, I, I, I wish upon wish upon wish. And if I didn't want to go to jail for harassment, I would probably go sit at the church right up the road. That we talked about a long time ago. That we've talked about a long time ago because I feel like, you know, for someone of your nature who's never experienced any kind of supernatural, any kind of, I, I can't imagine that you wouldn't. You've got to give them the short version of the story so, after bringing yeah, it up. Yeah, I, for those of you that just started listening to us or, or you know, uh, which there are many hundreds of thousands of you, um, thank you, first of all. Thank you for listening. Um, our numbers are this week we watch, we follow them every week. We don't report on them. You guys don't care. It's an inside the weeds, inside baseball thing. Numbers are the best they've ever been this week. That they are. By far. Um, so thank you, first of all. But the short story is this I used to work at a job, which I hated, but 
it's a necessary evil. We I used to deliver uniforms, and that includes dropping off towels and rugs and things. And if you've ever been in one of these jobs or you're currently doing this job, thank you. It's a much-needed service. You have a great gut. And those guys have a potential to make a whole lot of money. My particular job was a route specialist. It was my job to learn all the routes. So when a regular route dude went on vacation, I could sub in. It was one of the few positions where there was always, unless I was actually covering a route for a vacation, I was always with someone else. Um, most of the time, those guys all work alone. Um, that's an important fact because I don't want people to think who work in the industry, oh, he's full of crap because that's not how it, given what I did is why I was always with someone. Long story short, we go to these two places on this highway real close to us. I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give away the church and the church name because that's not fair to the church. They apparently don't want the publicity. Right. They don't want the publicity. But um, there's an old hospital across the street, about a quarter mile from the church, and me and the guy I was working with, Jason, and I'm going to reach out to Jason just to see if I can get him on the show, just because it'll be fun to have this conversation with him sitting here. Um, Jason and I had been talking that morning about the, you know, the the ghost and goblins and such. And I, I was like, you know, I can't imagine why we haven't seen something at the old hospital, because we this, this, this old hospital had been turned into like a plumbing warehouse and a daycare center and we had both businesses as part of our route never had seen anything in there never had felt anything in there and this particular day was no exception went all through that place laid the rugs did the towels the bending you know everything we we're supposed to do and we left went a quarter mile down the road to the church and we did the main rugs of the main church, and then we had to go into the youth center. Now, the youth center was just a three-in-one ranch where they had knocked out the wall between the kitchen and the living room, and it was one big open area, and they used it for youth activities. As soon as we walk in the door, I mean, as soon as we walk in the door, there was this dark heavy presence. And I looked at Jason. Jason looked at me. We didn't say anything. We just went about our business. We kind of had it mapped out. I had rugs. He had towels. I'm throwing a rug down. He's swapping out towels. Because we're trying to get done. We're trying to get done with the day. And the longer we were in there, the heavier and the darker it just got. And I can't I wish I could put into words more uh, better words what that felt like, except to say there was such a heaviness and a pressure to it that it was like pushing us down toward the floor. It was like for it was definitely top down. It was like uh, and it was just kind of like the air above us was heavy. I liken it somewhat to being in the ocean, you know, that pressure. Uh, but it was very, very, 
very dark. There was nothing light or airy about it. It was a evil, if you will. And we were there a total, I want to say it didn't take more than five minutes. The whole stop to do it correctly should have taken us 20 minutes in that particular building. After five minutes, we threw all the crap right in the middle of the floor and left. We could not take it anymore. And we got back in the truck and we just, we peeled out of there and we pulled off the road a little ways up and we looked at each other and was like, that was the most intense thing ever. Because it wasn't just one of us. Had I experienced that alone, I wouldn't expect anybody to believe me. Same with him. If he didn't experience that alone. But it, we we experienced it not only together, but also separately. Like when we first walked in, it was like, whoa. you know, we looked right at each other because it was instant. So anyway, that was that. You did reach out to the church multiple times. Multiple times. Never heard back. Never did. Well, you... Uh... We weren't trying to say that, you know, that you got Satan in your youth center. We were just going <laughs> to simply ask if you've had reports of this before. Has anyone reported feeling this way? And uh, that's why we said earlier, obviously, at this point, the church does not want the publicity. And uh, they certainly have that right. And we're not going to name the church and tell you where it's at. So, yeah, it's uh, there's weird things that happens no matter what. Well, I'm going to get started on the Mary Celeste ghost ship. The Mary Celeste was a Canadian-built American-registered merchant brigantine that was discovered floating adrift and deserted in the Atlantic Ocean off the Azorean Islands. And this happened in December of 1872. A few years ago. Yeah, a few years ago. Just a couple. She was built on Spencer's Island in Nova Scotia, Canada. She was launched under British reg- registration. Originally, her name was Amazon, and that was in 1861. And she was transferred to American ownership and registration in 1868, and that's when she got her new name, the Mary Celeste. And she had sailed uneventfully until her the voyage in question in 1872. And in the early 1872, the ship had a major refit cost more than $10,000, and that was a lot of money in that day and time. And it was basically a new ship. And she had a very experienced crew. The captain, name was Benjamin Briggs. The first mate, Albert Richardson. He was married to a niece of the major shareholder of the ship, and he had sailed with Briggs before. The second mate, the steward, and all four of the general seamen were all seasoned and experienced seamen. This wasn't a a novice crew. This wasn't a bunch of rookies. These guys had been at it for a while. And on October 20th, Briggs, the captain, began to supervise the loading of the ship's cargo. And the cargo was 1,701 barrels of alcohol. Captain Ooh. Briggs, yeah, exactly. Now, Captain Briggs' wife and infant daughter joined him a week later. And this brought the total number of the ship's occupants to 10. In a letter to his mother shortly before they left, Briggs himself, he declared himself eminently satisfied with the ship and the crew. And they sailed out of Pier 50 in New York on the morning of Tuesday, November the 5th. Now, there was a storm that was just offshore, and they decided to anchor just off Staten Island for two days. And they entered the Atlantic on November the 7th. 
Her destination was Genoa, Italy. The trip would normally take anywhere from 10 days to three weeks. Back in that time, a lot of it depended upon the weather, the winds, the load that was being carried, and even the ship itself. Isn't well, it crazy? No, I may interrupt you. No. But during this time, we talk about green energy and a lot of everything, and I ride these cruise ships that are probably the absolute worst <laughs> polluters in the world because they're basically city blocks that are in the water. These ships, other than the waste they generated, they all ran on the air, on yep. the wind, the currents. The, the captains and the crew knew how to get in the jet streams at this early they did. age and be able to use that to their advantage and hey, if we go this way at this time of year, it's going to be a much faster trip. And I just think that's amazing. amazing. I absolutely agree. People are a lot more inventive in that day and time. Had to be. Absolutely. We couldn't outpower nature, so we had to use nature's power against it. And became quite good at it. Well, 27 days after she left New York City, she was found floating adrift by a passing ship. It was approximately 430 miles off the shore of Lisbon, Portugal. The cargo was still in the hold, intact. No effort had been made to remove it. The crew's belongings, personal possessions, were still in their cabins, and some of it worth considerable amount of money. None of it touched. And again, it was undisturbed. There was a six-month supply of food and water on board. The only thing that seemed to be missing, other than the entire crew, was the sole lifeboat. It was gone. The lifeboat and all the people were gone. There was no evidence of a struggle. There was nothing broken. There was no blood. There was no everything that was supposed to be there was there, except for, again, the the one lifeboat and the ship's occupants. They even found the ship's daily log that was still on board. The last entry was from 8 a.m., November the 25th, nine days earlier. And it recorded the ship's position at that point in time as being just northeast of the Santa Maria Island, some 860 miles off the coast of Portugal. So during that time, and as far as we know, with no one on board, this ship had floated 400 and something miles. Now, of course, this begins to beg the question, why would an experienced captain such as Briggs and an experienced crew, as his was, abandon a perfectly sound ship? Now, their last destination, of which they gave the exact coordinates, was just off a small island. Even so, several trips were made, and virtually everyone on the small island they could find was asked, and no one had seen or heard of the crew. As far as we know, this crew, for some unknown reason, decided to get into the one lifeboat, leave this ship, leave their personal possessions, leave the cargo, and to go somewhere. We don't know where. Again, their last load position was quite close to one of the Azores Island, the Santa Maria. No one on the island had seen or heard of any of the crew. Now, theories over the years have been plentiful. Everything from mutiny to pirates to crew sickness. 
Others suggested more supernatural explanations like ghosts or sea monsters or an encounter with a mythical kraken. Some even suspected the crew of the Diagrata, which is the ship that found them uh, and brought them to shore. Now, in those days, if you found and saved a ship at sea, you were entitled to a large reward. And this ship and her cargo was insured for $46,000. A lot of money in 1872, right? I actually found a website that transfers. You can enter a date and get an amount of money. It'll tell you what the equivalent is in today's money. $1.1 million is roughly what that was worth. Um, obviously, since the captain and the crew of the Del Grotta who received the award had something to gain, they were looked at quite strongly. It turns out that there's a couple of reasons no one believes they had anything to do with it. They left New York City eight days after the Mary Celeste, and they were a much older, much slower ship. Eight days behind, much slower, should have never came close to the Mary Catching Celeste. Up. Right. None of the reasons make sense. None of them. Which is why it's probably become known as a ghost ship. Now, I'm not saying that ghosts made them leave this ship. I'm also not going to tell you we have a better explanation, because we don't. What happened to its crew that day in 1872? We're probably never going to know the full truth. And the Mary Celeste will forever remain a ghost ship, one of the great enigmas of the sea. I had to throw in one of your favorite words. Wow. So, experienced captain, experienced crew. The only inexperienced people on there are the captain's wife, wife and, and two child. Young child. And all of them got with no personal belongings other than clothes on their back for the most part. Into a ship. Or we Into assume a, they were still alive. We don't even know. A small rowboat. rowboat in the middle of the ocean. And decided this is our best chance of survival. That's stunning. It is. What, you know, yeah, what, what would drive someone to that point? I mean, we can sit here and talk all we want to about, um, well, maybe it was fog or a natural occurrence, but the lack of damage on the ship itself, most captains are going to be all right with that. They're going to figure that out. You know, in today's world, when we were talking about the Bermuda Triangle, there's the the weeds that the, some of these ships can get into that, that leave them uh, stranded for a while so they can break through the weed patches. But that's out, that wasn't the case here. This is too far north. Those weeds can't exist. Um, so it wasn't like they were stuck in a, a weed patch. I know it sounds weird in the middle of the ocean, but it's a real thing. Look it up. Yep. Um, that's so weird. It's easy to see why it became known as a ghost ship. What, what, what would what would cause you? You're an analytical guy, Jerry. I'm more of a. I think we've already covered this earlier. <laughs> for, first, if enough <laughs> unexplained crap happened in my house or my cabin of my ship, <laughs> again, they were very close to this small island. Yeah. They, yeah, 
Remember earlier when I said your correct answer should have been the next port of call? <laughs> they may have looked at the Santa Maria Island and decided this is our port of call. I have no idea. Your answer is what would get me to do that? It would yeah. a lot. I can't imagine what would make me think this small rowboat in the middle of the ocean would be our best avenue for escape. Uh-uh. I cannot imagine. Not for uh, an experienced uh, captain who had already considered retirement. He'd spent his entire career, very successful career, doing just this. There is a story of another captain that was very similar in Alaska that was an experienced captain who was at the end of his career, and his job was to carry gold from Alaska down to the West Coast to have it sold and uh, blah, blah, blah. Someone killed him. Well, experienced captain, as as the ship, now this is in the steam era, as the ship is leaving the port of call, boom, big explosion, ship blows up and sinks. Well, when they found the ship, all the gold they can't find. Right? None of the gold found. So the rumor in that ship was that the captain and crew had secretly, the day after they left, had removed all the gold into small dinghies, moved all of that off, and then set the bomb off and sank the ship in hopes of getting away with the gold. And... They were eventually caught, I think. I'd have to look to make sure. but And if not caught, at least they are at least fingered for that because none of the bodies were found. None of, I mean, it was kind of a similar situation. But none of the cargo was left with the exploded ship. Right. None of the important cargo. Right. In this case. Everything that, was there. Everything was still there. Even their own belongings. Right. That's the weird part. Their own belongings were there. How many movies is this 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 thing generated? I did read one proposed theory that made a little bit of sense. It believed that several of these barrels of alcohol had leaks and that fumes had escaped, enough fumes to rid everyone on board of all their senses, and they had decided to leave the safe ship and to go out into a rowboat into the ocean. The only problem was of the 1,701 barrels of alcohol, when it was found, the ship was found, seven barrels were empty. The seven barrels were made of white oak, which apparently at the time was known to be much more apt to leak. Every one of the other barrels were untouched. They were all of a different type of oak that was... And the seven barrels, it was not assumed, even if the fumes from all of those had gone straight to the everyone on crew on board, and they'd all been in one room, that that, that would have been enough to have caused this. Yeah. Uh, I, there's really no explanation that, that makes sense. Obviously, with it being 150 years ago, yeah, we're not going to get the answer. Well, you know, it... To me, it comes down to two things. What's that? Because it, it, it can only come down to two things. And, and here's why. I'll eliminate things as I go. 
Kraken. It can't be Kraken. Kraken would destroy the ship or there'd be markings. You don't just see a Kraken and get into a smaller a boat. <laughs> By the way, Kraken is a legendary sea monster. Right. It's not even right. a known real thing. Exactly. Yet. But if it was, <laughs> but if it would was. it be able to get rid of everyone on board to scare them out of the ship without it doing severe damage right. to the ship? Nothing exactly. was found that right. indicated anything similar. So, you know, an onboard fire would make that happen. Fire is the worst thing you can have on a no ship or a boat of any kind. There's no fire. It would no have exploded blood. the ship. There's no blood. There's so not it even wasn't, a fight or evidence that a fight occurred. Which means that rules out mutiny. mutiny. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. um, mutiny was one of the first things. That was looked at. And if you're going to mutinize the ship, you're going to sell the freaking cargo and all the belongings. Or at least some. You yeah. Know, maybe you got scared off, but you would grab something, something. a few things to make it at least so, semi-worthwhile. Okay. Maybe it's maybe it's ghost or a haunting, a poltergeist. However, if that's the case, it was never reported before as any part of any logs. And certainly, did they put the ship back into use after yes. it was... the so, ship failed for, sailed for several years. So, after the fact, it was never never mentioned as a ghost ship, you know, never full of ghosts. Several so, years later, the captain... Several years later, the ship was grounded in off Haiti and sank. And the captain of the ship and the owner of the ship were charged with insurance fraud and wow. convicted. So but yes, that was several years later, and there was no incidents in. Michigan. So that brings it down to me as a UAP or a UA a UAW. I have to go get the dogs. Yeah, Speaking of a UAW, I think your dogs yeah. have found some. Yeah, they're letting you know that you. Yeah, it's one of those deals where we're we're just never going to know. It's been too long. There was no evidence found at the time. Uh, so all we can do is simply try to speculate and try to come up with, with what possibly could have happened. And no matter what theories that you examine and look at, I'm still left with what I said earlier, which is that uh, it's known as a ghost ship. I can't sit here and tell you that ghosts are the reasons that these people left the ship. I also certainly can't tell you that we have a better explanation because we certainly don't. Uh, I guess that's part of what makes these stories interesting is the fact that there's some of these that after all these years, we, we absolutely have literally no idea. We call it a ghost ship, not because in this case, most ghost stories have some evidence, some people claiming that they saw something, they heard something, that, that it's haunted. And this is not one of those. This is simply saying that uh, this ship, every single one of the crew disappeared in the middle of the sea. And we, we don't know what happened. So if it wasn't a ghost, we really have absolutely no better idea of what it could be. Which is very different from Steve's topic tonight. Steve's topic is at one where we're simply saying maybe it was ghost or it could have been ghost. Steve, it's kind of the exact other end of the spectrum. It's saying we have an absolute ton of witnesses and people saying we saw things that shouldn't have occurred. Yeah. The uh, First of all, let me apologize for that. 
for the first time in, so Ramona is three years old. Uh, she's she's our poodle. <laughs> um, and we've always had neighbors on one side of our house. Uh, and they're used to those neighbors. They're always out. They talk to them. For the first time, for the first time ever, we have neighbors on their other house. They've never known that. And those new neighbors have a dog. It's an old dog. And the dog, I don't even think the dog can hear Ramona bark, but boy, it just tears her up that we have. She doesn't think there should be a dog over. (laughs) She's never, she's just going, and I apologize in advance for that. There's just nothing I can do about it. Um, and I'm not going to stop the episode tonight just because she wants to bark. But you're right, Jerry. Tonight's episode, um, or tonight's topic on my end is, it's scary. Dude, I, 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 <laughs> I, uh, I, I can do a lot of stuff. The one thing that keeps me away from messing around with Ouija boards, the one thing that makes me not ask for things to happen is I never ever want to invite a poltergeist into my house. The sheer fact of um, poltergeist scare the absolute bejesus out of me. I, the, the types of power that some of these poltergeists exhibit blows me away and if you don't buy into the underworld or the unseen world and the types of power that it has i challenge you to just youtube poltergeist videos you know you're going to see a hundred and out of that hundred eighty five may be fake maybe ninety five maybe ninety five there's that Small portion. That 1-5%. There's a video when I was researching this um, that came up of an office building in Japan. And it's like a five-minute video. And it is a sequence of CVT or CCT cameras that are all on a loop. And it just kind of flashes between the different cameras. And then as the cameras pick up something, they hit and they stop. I mean, it's what any motion sensor camera system will do. You know, you and I have both been managers at retail. It's what they do. They just cycle through until they see something. They see something. They have to stop, focus on it, make sure it's not a burglar so they can, you can then take it and show the police at some point. If you've been burglarized, that really happened to me down in, uh, I ran a store down in Pine Knot that was broken into. And you talk about a scary experience. You know, we'd had some issues with an alarm, a roof hatch going crazy during storms. And um, so we go in nonchalant. We don't, me and a couple of officers, and we don't anticipate there being anybody in the building, and I'll be damned if there wasn't people in the building. Oh, really? <laughs> never heard this story. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you about it um, real quick because we got a little time. So 
Um, it was late midnight ish, you know, and and the company I worked for at the time was called uh, Duckwall. Yeah, I think it was Duck Pomida. It was Pomida, okay. yeah. which was the bigger version of Duckwalco. Is their flagship, if you will, and. So get the alarm. I drive into town. I open the door. Me and two cops meet me. That's the way it works. You know, our alarm system, call the police. We all meet. We go in. We check the perimeter. We're walking down through the center of the store toward electronics to go to the back. And all of a sudden, somebody pops up and takes off running. You talk about your heart going into your throat when the cop stops you and pulls you to the ground and screams, and he's pulled out his gun. That's some crazy shit going on right there. I'm just going to tell you. Yep. And this dude runs all the way back. He runs through and he goes up and he gets up on the he goes up on the roof and they chase him. Wasn't there like a back fire exit door he could have went out of that went yeah, on the roof? The thing was he had his bag up on the top of the roof what and he grabbed that? it. My guy jumped. Because the cops chased him all the way up, up through the roof hatch. And when they got up on top, he's he's running toward the end. He's got his little loot bag with him. They tell him to freeze, and the cop shoots him way above his head, obviously. And the guy jumps off the freaking roof. I don't know how he didn't die. I mean, we're talking, think Walmart-style roof. I mean, it's that high. And uh, so they end up... Uh, about three counties over, they had a guy come in with a leg injury. And, of course, didn't take very good, you know, a whole lot of police work to realize that that was our guy. But uh, turns out he was he he was working for me as part of an intern program. I'll be done. And, uh, what was he a, hoping to get? He'd stolen a bunch of CDs, Jeez, basically. Okay. All of that went to prison over some stupid CDs because he ran from the cops. And he just stopped, you know, turned himself in. The whole thing could have probably been, went away or he got a slap. Probably misdemeanor. Yeah. I thought it was, I don't, what's it take, 250, 500 there. for a felony? I mean, I, I don't, don't know, know how many CDs he had. but I mean, yeah, just stupid. Yeah. It was the escape, wanting endangerment, all that crap. Have we got a second? Yeah. I got a crazier story to tell you than that. Okay. When I was in Fredericksburg, Virginia, we had a store in Washington, D.C., in District Heights that was always in trouble and always had a, needed a bunch of help. And I was actually having to go help run this store at the time. Wasn't on duty at the time. But one night, this store was robbed. It was robbed multiple times. We hired off-duty uh, D.C. policemen undercover uh to protect the store, just to have a guard in the store. It was that dangerous. Oh, oh. It had been broken into and robbed that many times. Anyway, this guy goes to rob the store. He comes up to a cashier. He waits till no other customers are around. He comes up. He pulls a gun and says, give me all your money. She looks at him. She looks at her register. She's pretty new. She's scared. She looks at him. She looks at her register. She looks at him. She looks at the register and says, you got to buy something. He says, what do you mean? She said, I can't open the register. You have to buy something. This guy grabs a pack of gum, throws it on the counter. She rings it up. She looks at him. She looks at the register. <laughs> so the total is a dollar nineteen or whatever. 
He looks at her. She looks at him. She looks at the register. It won't open. You've got to give me. This man takes out a $20 bill and gives her. She rings it in. The door or the drawer comes open. She He leans over and starts to grab the money. The undercover DC cop comes around the corner, sees this customer leaning over with his hands in the tool, pulls his gun, hollers freeze. This gentleman runs off. He doesn't take the 20 he gave her. He doesn't get change. He doesn't get his gum. This man is found and goes to prison for armed robbery. And you know what he stole? Nothing. He gave us 20 bucks. (laughs) He gave me 20 bucks to go to prison. (laughs) He paid 20 bucks to go to prison. Wow. Yeah. As the old boy said, what the hell? I, I got one. I got one more. Okay. Retail story here that I just got to tell. Sure. Big Lots, actually. Okay. Lexington. You know, Arkansas store. Yeah. Yeah. Anything crazy. There. You're talking about you call it crazy, right? The old one on Eastland yeah. Avenue. Yeah. So we're sitting there, and I'm back in the break room, and they call me at the front, and they're like, Steve, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> what? It's manager on duty. So... They're like, we need you to come over and remove somebody from the clothing department. I remember this. I'm like, the clothing department? And and they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So I go up. I have no idea what to expect. And there is this (sighs) rather (laughs) large young lady. Um, and my gosh, large is an understatement. Large is what she would aspire to be if she could aspire to be small. Okay. I I just, I, I, and I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm not trying to belittle anybody, but this lady easily could have been on that one weight, my 500 pound sister or whatever. Right. Easily. And she is butt naked in the clothing department at, at Big Lots. And I go up to her and I'm like, um, ma'am, what are you doing? And she's like, well, you don't have dressing rooms. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. that's because we have a very liberal return policy. If something doesn't fit, you can bring it back. Why well, ain't got time for all that? Well, we have children in the store, ma'am. Could you please put some clothes on? The hell with your kids and the hell with the kids and got irate with me. Now, this is where a normal sane person, even in their anger, would at least put back their own clothes and storm out angry. Mm-mm, not this late. This lady takes it upon herself to be so angry and so mad at me, she leaves. Which, you know, the front doors from the clothing department at the time were, you know, a stone. I mean, you could just walk right out. I would have been happy for her to have stolen some clothes. She walks down, and this is a busy shopping center. She leaves the store, and we're right dead in the center of the shopping yep. center. You remember where this is. Sure do. I worked there for a while. Yeah. She turns and goes down, and I'm on the phone with the police, and I'm like, you can't miss this woman. 
Well, what's she wearing? Nothing. Yep. She's wearing what God gave her. So, the long story short, the police come, and they pick her up, and they come up to the store, and they're like, is this the lady? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, you were wrong. We couldn't miss her if we wanted to. Yep. <laughs> the things you see in retail, and I'm sure food is just as bad. Anyway, we're off track. Yeah. Let's talk about the one thing that really... Really, really scares the bejesus out of me. Poltergeist. Now, poltergeist in its in and of itself, excuse me, um, basically is comes from the German folklore, and it basically just means loud ghost or um, ghost that is create that can create a physical disturbance. Loud noises, objects being moved. Most claims are fictional. <laughs> Most shows are fictional. Um, but like Jerry and I had said, if you take all of what you see, you can account for 95% of that being faked in some way, form, or fashion. You can probably go even a little higher. But there's always going to be that one small percentage that's real. And tonight's episode, we're going to talk about the Pune, and that's an it's a city in India. It's often referred to as the uh, um, uh, the great knowledge city of the East, uh, or India, not Italy. I'm sorry, but. Uh, it's known for its many colleges. It's a bustling area. Uh, we're going to talk about the Pune Poltergeist tonight. Uh, poltergeist has long been considered a, a hoax. A long been considered. A lot of people don't believe them. They have outbreaks. Um, there's... Claims from, we've all seen the movie from, you know, They're Here. That is all from the Herman House, which I have a little bit about the Herman House. If we have time for it, if we don't, we can always come back. Um, because the Pune actually deserves our attention. Because this thing is... Scary. Scary. And it centers around three small children. It starts with one boy, um, ends uh, with the two boys' youngest sister, um, sort of. <laughs> um, you know, it, it stops becoming a story with her anyway. I don't know that it ever ends, unfortunately. But um, anyway... Pune is the eighth most populous metropolitan area in all of India. And if you know anything about India, it's the fastest growing population center on the world. It's insane. This story, however, happens all the way back in 1918, excuse me, 1828, between July of 1828 and this particular part that I'm going to cover between 1828 and June of 1829. Uh, this 
these two folks, um, Dr. Kafka and Miss Cohn, decide to adopt a young boy who has been orphaned. Mom has committed suicide. We'll get to that later. Uh, Dad had, was an older fellow. He had passed away soon after the, 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 the kids were born. And the rumors were already out there at this time of that these kids had some sort of negative energy surrounding them. Now, Dr. Kafka and Jerry and I looked, and we couldn't really necessarily find what kind of doctor he was, whether it was a medical doctor or a doctorate in degree. Uh, Puna is described as the, the, uh, man, why am I having such a hard time with that? The learning center of India at the time. So, um, that that only makes sense that these scholars were there, and they wanted to make sure and, and dispel any inaccuracies about these children. They wanted to show the world that these children were just normal children, and all this talk of, uh, um, all these talk of poltergeist surrounding these kids was all hoax and BS. So anyway, um, the very first incident that they noticed was Mrs. Cohn, who was a novel note taker. She was a note taker to the 12th degree note taker, which is why we know what we know about this incident and why it's so unprecedented. The notes that she took were not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, No one who's read them believes that they were exaggerated or any form of hyperbole. She was very matter of fact. She was down to earth. She was very, um, very much like you, Jerry. A skeptic. She was also a college professor. She was right. a lecturer in languages at the governmental Deakin College, which is in Pune, which is part of the Bombay University system. Right, right. Yeah, very, very intelligent lady, very professional lady. And uh, so, basically, they wanted to adopt these kids and show them what real life, what, what life could be. And, and as someone who's done that, I understand the reasoning behind it. You know, uh, thank goodness, however, my kids didn't come with poltergeist. (laughs) Um, Thank goodness, because I don't know that I could have handled it. So the youngest of the two boys was named Demonar, and and I'm sure I'm butchering his name, and I apologize. Um, And he seemed to have some negative energy around him. Um, It wasn't a ton of energy, but there was definitely something. And most of what happened to him prior to the next event um, happened while he was asleep. So the first thought was from Dr. Kafka, Ms. Cohn, was that he's faking a lot of this stuff. Unfortunately, that was dispelled pretty quickly. 
the first or second night he was there and he was asleep, she was in his room and she witnessed a very tall mirror that was hanging on the wall, gently lift itself off of the wall and sit on the floor. It didn't fall. It didn't break. It was sat down very gently. Also, she noticed that a paperweight, an actual paperweight, back in those days, they used paperweights. They had, if they were well-to-do, they had a fan or a ceiling fan. They didn't have air conditioning. So they actually had to use paperweights because they had to keep their papers from flying away. Notice the paperweight also come off of a small desk and sit on the floor. Not break, not thrown, non-violent, just matter-of-factly done. She found this a bit concerning, but didn't think anything of it except to write it in her notes. Unfortunately, that was pretty much the end of the nonviolence. <laughs> um, shortly after that, they tracked down Demonar's older brother, and I am certainly going to destroy his name. Jerry, you want to help me with that? Uh, Rama Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna. There you go. Ram Krishna. Ram, not Rama. Ram Krishna. Ram Krishna was a lot old. Not a lot older, but a few eight years, years older. He was eight years older than his younger brother. And when he came to live in the house, that's when, as good old JR would say in wrestling, business was about to pick up. Yep. Um, because now you didn't have one entity in the house. You had two entities in the house. And they, I guess, worked together because this became a living nightmare. And when you say they worked together? The, the two entities. Yes, not the two boys. Not the two boys. They Absolutely not. Yes. The, the older boy was just so thankful. They actually found him working in a tea shop. He was malnourished, basically a slave, uh, worked daylight till dark, and he was, what, uh, wasn't even, was well under 18 at the time. Uh, of course, you know, this is back in a time where they didn't have labor, child labor laws, so they were allowed and he to had no that. parents. Both mom no and parents. dad were dead. Yeah, he had no one fighting for him. So he was just thankful to have a home and to be loved until all of this happened. So basically, the the attacks initially started against Ramakrishna, and they were brutal attacks. I mean, they would toys would be thrown at him. Um, at one point. Rusty razor blades were thrown at him, and uh, abuses, pinches, bites, slaps. These are all things that, and it wasn't things that, you know, he was doing to himself for attention. A lot of things that happen in today's world, they believe, are faked for attention. These are things that Mr. Kafka, or Dr. Kafka, and Mrs. Cone witnessed happen to the boys while they were asleep. Much of it, yes. Um, and not just those two, you know, because then the next thing is, well, the Kafka and Cone are the ones causing the damage. But this is happening in front of other people as well who are 
scholars, if you will, because they're trying to figure this out because they're attacking it from a scholarly perspective. You know, they're trying to figure it out. And they called in all the experts of the day, witch doctors, magicians, exorcists, clairvoyants. Yeah. They tried everything they knew to get to the bottom of it. And the weird thing was, you know, we see the movies and you see the exorcist come in from the priesthood and he's got his little case and he he goes through and he gets rid of the demon and everybody. No, every time that someone came and failed, these entities gained strength. And it seemed to be unlimited strength. And we're going to get to that in just a second. I know this episode's going to go a little long. Can I interrupt one second? Absolutely. I read somewhere that they said that with all the witch doctors and magicians, the exorcists, the clairvoyants, that none of that seemed to help. None. They also called in some religious people. And they said that prayer at times did seem to be somewhat successful. Yeah. Yeah, so that would work a little bit sometimes. The other stuff never made it much worse, actually. Yeah, uh, apparently they did not like Sage, whatever it was. It pissed them off. (laughs) So at some point, we'll fast forward just a little bit. This this was a whole thing that never went away. Uh, Miss Cohn did some background research, and apparently the boy's mom did, in fact, um, kill herself because of the two spirits that were attacking her, her children. She couldn't take it. It was too much. Now, it doesn't go into detail as to what happened in their home before they got here that was the too much, but it because obviously that would all been hearsay. But we're going to get to some things here that in your book, Jerry, would have been way too much. <laughs> oh, we've passed. We've already way past way too much. But again, as we were saying, one thing I would like to add. Sure. This house wasn't haunted. It's not the and house. These boys went somewhere else. These spirits went with them. It yeah. happened at the other house and would never happen at this house without the boys. Even to school. So this, I, I, yeah, I'm saying let's leave the next port of call if it's yeah. a ship. You can leave a house. How do you leave your kids? Right. I mean, you took these kids to raise their babies, regardless. Um, so Ramakrishna moves out, ages out, if you will, goes on with his life. And for some reason, the two entities stay. And now they're focused on Diminar. And this poor boy is in a world of perpetual hell. The Mr. Kafka or Dr. Kafka, excuse me, and Mrs. Cone are in a world of perpetual hell. The attacks never stop. In fact, they only intensify. When Ramakrishna left, the attacks against Demonar intensified to the point they were non-ceasing. Toys would be ripped from the cupboard and thrown across the room at them either Mrs. Cone or at Demonar. Um, one of the things that uh, we talked about a little while before the episode was the feeding times. When it was time to eat, Demonar got to the point he couldn't feed himself because every time he brought a spoon to his mouth, something would tear the spoon out of his hands and fling it across the room. 
it got to a point that Mr. Kafka had to hold him while Mrs. Cone forced with both hands a, a spoon or a fork full of food into the waiting mouth of this young man because he was starving. And she had to do it under pain of another force trying to pull her hands away from him to keep her from feeding him. Think about that for a second. Can't even imagine. That you are trying to feed your child and there is some unknown entity that's got you wrapped with some sort of energy and you're forcing against it just to get food into their mouth. And again, this is not something that a couple of young boys is telling. No. This is something that the family and many others Many observed. experts. Yes, many experts, including a Mr. Price, which we'll get to him in a second. I'll let you talk about Mr. Price here in just a second, Jerry, if you want to pull his stuff up, because he's 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 a, a great addition to this and, and an extra set of eyes that show this. But, I mean, it got to a point where Dr. Kafka... Just so Diminar can have some rest, would just hold him to shield him from all the toys and books and stuff that's just being flung around the room trying to hit him. Can you imagine being yeah. under such brute? And it didn't matter where you went. You could go to a hotel and it follow you. You could go on a train and it's going to follow you. You can't outrun it. So they just sit there and suffer in hope. It's insane. <laughs> that it is. The one thing that didn't deviate, however, was Mrs. Cone's notes. It's the one thing that they have to go by, and it's the one thing that makes this case so unique because she recorded everything she saw. And right, wrong, and different, she made sure, and you can tell if you write angry, you can tell. Or if you write under duress, you can tell. If you write from a biased standpoint. Yes. And this is just as clinical writing as you can possibly write. And to that that credit, man, what kind of nerves did that take? Absolutely. Just blew me away. Unfortunately, as the attacks on Demonar continue, they also began to start targeting Demonar's little sister. And this is where it gets really creepy and scary. And I'm going to cover just a couple of things before we break away because it can get very un-G rated very fast, unfortunately. Um, but there was one such instance where Demonar had tied on the sister's bib. Mrs. Cohn checked the, the knots and it was great. It was a good job. He loved his little sister. As she was feeding the little sister, the little sister started choking and started grabbing at her neck. And when they checked the knots again on the back of the bib, it had been intricately untied. It had been untied and retied into a series of six almost tourniquet-like knots that were choking the baby to death. Isn't that crazy? How yeah, the hell not. does that happen? <laughs> it's not something that we can explain. No, no. And and we're gonna we're gonna stop there. We're gonna talk a little bit about Mr. Price. We may even pick this up in a future episode 
But I really want to do more in, uh, research to figure out where this ends. And if you find out before we do and get back with you on that, please let us know. But um, as we stand right now, this poor child and his sister now are both under brutal, constant, daily attack with multiple, multiple witnesses, including Mr. Rice. Tell or Mr. Price. Tell us about Mr. Price a little bit. Harry Price. He was uh, first of all from the Wikipedia article. Harry Price, born in 1881, passed away in 1948, was a British psychic researcher and author who gained public prominence for his investigations into psychical phenomena and exposing fraudulent spiritualist mediums. Right. This isn't a guy who made his living saying, ooh, look at the bad Scary ghost. things. No, he's trying to, he's a debunker. He's trying to be scientific. He's trying to be, to, to actually do scientific research and determine, is this true? Is it not? Again, as you said, for every hundred cases, we know that there's a bunch of them that are made up. This guy made a living trying to do very good research, and to when he found the ones that were making it up, he announced them for being that. Um, he's also best known for his well-publicized investigation of the purportedly haunted Borley Rectory in Essex, England. And uh, one second... He was also one of the editors for the Journal of the American Society for Psychical Research. And in 1930, they did a couple of articles about the Puna poltergeist. When he was introducing uh, Ms. Cohn, who, again, he is in London. She is in Pune, India. She had come to London, England, seeking help for this case. And she went to him. He was well-known in his field. And she went to him. And as you mentioned, she had done an outstanding job of taking notes, of documenting the case, of documenting when it happened, exactly what happened, uh, who was there, who witnessed it, and getting other people to write down their testimonies, their witness statements. And she was so good at it that, that he later said that this was one of the most uh, best researched incidents that he had ever come across in his entire life. Yeah. He was that impressed by her. Um, he states that he believed Ms. Cohn to be very intelligent and level-headed professional. He also states that many of the phenomena occurred when the boys were asleep and were observed by several people, not just according to Ms. Cohn, but due after his own research, he had determined that that was, in fact, the case that there were several reputable people who agreed and corroborated her stories. So at this point, you're left with a series of people saying this happened. Uh, I, I don't At this point, I don't really see how you can deny the facts of, of what happened here. So, no. Yeah, Mr. Harry Price was an expert of the field. He wasn't someone who was trying to get famous for saying, hey, here's some... Spooky, scary ghost. Right. He did his research and was known for being someone who would tell exactly what the facts were and present them in a logical manner. And this, he believed, was one of the most well-authenticated cases that he had ever dealt with in his career. And just scary as junk. 
Very much so. So, the case of the Mary Celeste. More or less news coverage? Uh, I'm good with what it's got. We're not going to discover anymore. And again, there's no one that ever said that there were ghosts. No one has ever said they saw anything, heard anything. All we're saying is we don't have a better explanation. Yeah. That's why it's known as the Mary Celeste ghost ship, yeah. because we can't come up with a better explanation. So at that point, unless more evidence happens to come up, and it, it's 150 years later, where's it going to come from? <laughs> right. Uh, On a ship that was destroyed by being ran aground in the Caribbean. In the Hades Mini, yeah. yeah. That was, uh, I think, in the late 1880s. Yeah. yeah, that was 140 years ago. So we, we've probably covered that one enough. Yeah. I don't know that more coverage is going to help. Again, would, that's what I basically base it on. Will more yeah. coverage help? Yeah. In this case, I don't think that it will. I would agree. Thumbs down on the Mary Celeste. However, on the Puna Poltergeist. No, oh, it's just too big. I it's, have to give it a thumbs up. Um, we're going to cover more on it. So <laughs> too, big, too documented, too, too many... And we literally have scratched the surface oh, yeah. just because we ran out of time. But I, I just, uh, I hope that you've got enough that it's wet your whistle and that makes you want to at least delve into it yeah. a little bit more. Go do some research yourself. Yeah. Puna, P-O-O-N-A, Poltergeist. Yeah, you're going to get a couple of cool videos, a couple of cool podcasts up about it, most likely. Um, check them out because they're really good. The people have done a good job with them. Um, I think that uh, the Puna Poltergeist is one of those cases that scare the holy bejesus right out of me. So I am going to go watch some Phineas and Ferb tonight before I try to go to bed. (laughs) To sum up the Puna Poltergeist, this is one, as Mr. Mike would say, just makes me go, what the hell? <laughs> it really is. I, I, there's no explaining this. No, no, except evil. Yeah. I mean, I don't see how you explain it any way other than evil. I would agree. Brett, if you are out there and you happen to hear this podcast, please come back. You, we your, miss you. Your, your career as a carny is not going to go as you want it to. <laughs> Uh, Your children miss you. We miss you. Come back. And with that, we'll call it a night. Man, that episode is really interesting. And if you'll stick around for us for just a few commercials, we have another great story to tell you. Hi, this is Ed Locke with USA Mortgage. When it comes to buying a home, the process can be overwhelming and confusing. With so many options, it can be hard to know where to start. That's why it's important to work with a certified mortgage loan originator. I have the knowledge and expertise to guide you through the process and find the best mortgage option for you. I will work with you every step of the way to ensure that you are getting the best deal possible. So if you're looking to purchase or refinance, please reach out to me at 502-680-0953. So don't take on the stress of buying a home alone. Work with me and I will make your dream a reality. Trust the professionals and make your home buying experience a positive one. MLS ID 448-908, DAS Acquisition Company, LLC, doing business as USA Mortgage, MLS ID 227-262. This is not a commitment to lend. Additional terms and conditions apply. USA Mortgage is equal housing opportunity. If you want us to review or rate your product on air, 
If you have suggestions for new episodes, awesome ghost stories, or anything else, please reach out to us. Our email address is newsworthywithstephenjerry at gmail.com. Our text number is area code 540-709-1318. And now, back to the story. Jerry, tonight's bonus story involves the world's most macabre, non-vegan, non-fruit fruit. Oh, jeez. I have no <laughs> idea what is it. It's a fig. Oh, my goodness. Fig's not just an ordinary fruit. In fact, it's not even a fruit. It might be offended if you call it a fruit. Strictly speaking, figs are inverted flowers. Figs don't bloom in the same way as other fruit, like trees or almonds or cherries. Figs have a very curious history. First of all, they're technically not a fruit, but what's called an infruity, or a set of fruits. And secondly, they need a slaughtered wasp to breed, and it's an insect that literally, literally will live most of its life inside the fig, die inside the fig, and fertilize the fig. Hence the reason it's non-vegan. Secondly, or excuse me, thirdly, each flower produces one single nut, and a single seed is called an aquarium. A fig is made up of several branches, which actually give it its characteristic crunchy texture. Therefore, when you eat one fig, you're actually eating hundreds of fruit. But the most amazing thing is the special pollination process that fig flowers need to reproduce. They can't depend on weather, the wind, or even my favorite honeybees to bring pollen to it as other fruits do. So they need to enlist the help of a a special species known as the fig wasp. These insects transport their genetic material and, in the process, allow it to reproduce. For their part, the wasp can't live without the figs. The male wasp will live their entire life inside the fig, born, live, and die inside the fruit. Their relationship is known as a symbiote or symbiosis or even a mutualistic relationship. However, currently, the vast majority of producers of this fruit no longer need the work of wasp, and most fig varieties for human consumption are now non-genetic, and this just means they will always bear fruit even in the absence of a pollinator. The fig, who'd have thunk? And Jerry, if you can't see the light, be the light.